0: I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning and that you will turn in them to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. You'll find Matthew 6 verse 5 on page 811 of the Bibles that are provided for you in the backs of the chairs. And I'm going to read Matthew 6. 5 through 15 now. This is what the scripture says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... The words that Jesus spoke in our passage for today contain some of the most famous Christian words in church history. Since they were written first by Matthew, written down here 2,000 years ago, Christians have been reading and reciting and modeling their prayers after this passage. But that passage that I'm referring to actually comes after some verses that are closely connected to the broader section of which it is a part, which contains three smaller sections of instructions from Jesus. The first two verses of this passage in Matthew 6, starting in verse 5, are very similar to the sections that bookend it about performance-based righteousness. Giving is in the first section. Praying is in our section for today, and fasting is in the section that follows it. All three of these things, giving, praying, fasting, good and right forms of religious devotion that the Jews were committed to and should have been, and that even we are often committed to and should be. But Jesus' great sermon up to this point has been laser-focused on the importance of the true righteousness of the heart. He has said that anger makes you just as sinful as a murderer, lust makes you just as sinful as an adulterer, and so on. That's the message of the you-have-heard-it-said statements that precede the section before us today. But in this passage, like the passage before it and the one after it, Jesus' message, though similar, is slightly different. He's no longer saying, as he said in the You Have Heard It Said statements, actually, you are guilty of the very things you think you're avoiding. Your righteousness isn't good enough. Now he's saying, actually, even the good things you're doing are stained by sin. Your righteousness isn't good enough. And so the overarching message of today's passage is the same as the last one. Better to practice righteousness privately and miss out on earthly reward than to lose kingdom rewards through hypocritical righteousness. However, this passage of the three is unique to the other two that bookend it in one massive way. This passage contains the single greatest and most important teaching on prayer in the whole Bible. It's a really big deal which is part of why I'm excited to preach it to you on the biggest day of the year for Christians. Right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, almost exactly, guys like Mike Lee and I wish it was just one more. There's 116 lines before it and 114 after it. And so we're like, 115 and 115 would have been even better. But it's right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is this interlude, you might call it what Christians often call the Lord's Prayer, or what may be better called Jesus' model prayer. The Jews had messed up the righteous practice of prayer as they did with other things. Prayer is good, but the Jews had turned it sour through what Jesus identifies first. And so first he tells his disciples how not to pray. And it's essentially... The message of verses 5 through 8 is this. Don't pray for your own glory. You must not be like the hypocrites, he says in verse 5. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. He says in verse 7, don't be like the Gentiles as they heap up empty phrases thinking they will be heard for their many words. Don't pray for your own glory. Don't pray like hypocrites. Don't pray like Gentiles. What does Jesus mean by these designations of hypocrites and Gentiles? Well, Jesus is first talking about a common problem in the practice of prayer in the synagogues. And it would have been a problem with all kinds of people, not just the Pharisees and scribes, though it stands to reason that they would have led the way in this issue. It's the problem of praying to be seen by others. And this is the same problem that existed with the giving in the synagogue in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, and it is the same problem that exists in verses 16 through 18 regarding fasting. It's the problem of practicing righteousness for the sake of one's own glory. Giving in a way that people will be impressed with your generosity, praying in a way that people will be impressed with your piety, and fasting in a way that people will be impressed with your sanctity. And so what Jesus is forbidding, After all, the phrase here is, you must not. So that's a a clear imperative or command. What he is forbidding is praying, first of all, like hypocrites. He says that hypocrites stand and pray in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, as far as we know, none of those practices is bad on their own. Standing to pray, Praying aloud, praying publicly in synagogue, and even prayer in the street can be found in Scripture positively. And we know Jesus himself engaged in public prayer. So it's not as simple as Jesus commanding that literally every single time someone prays, they have to do it privately. Rather, Jesus has a problem with the hypocrites, look at verse 5, who love to stand and pray in synagogue, and on the corner, that they may be seen. You see that important qualifier? Once again, it's the heart behind their praying in public that our Lord has a problem with. It's not the act of praying in public. That can be fine. And so when Jesus says in verse 6, then, to go into your private room, he's not giving a Rigid, literal instruction for every occurrence of prayer in the life of a Christian. Rather, he is talking about the proper heart behind kingdom righteousness, and in particular, when it comes to prayer. Once again, better to practice your righteous privately and miss out on some kind of an earthly reward than to lose eternal kingdom rewards through hypocritical practices of righteousness. And so our Lord is saying to his disciples in this moment and to us in our time, reading the text thousands of years later, that prayer with the intention of being noticed by others and impressing them makes you a hypocrite because you're just putting on an act. To be a hypocrite at its essence means to be an actor, to be putting on a performance. don't really mean what you're praying you're just hoping that this ritual that you actually don't care about and don't understand at all will put you in good standing with the people whose opinion you apparently value more than god because god jesus goes on in the second half of verse six sees in secret so he knows what's actually happening in the heart people don't but he does You know, this could happen to us today with any of us who lead in prayer during a corporate worship service like this. This could happen with a a dad getting up early in the morning perhaps to pray and read his Bible, hoping his wife and kids will be impressed with his spirituality. This could happen when you have guests in your home and you lead in prayer for the meal. All of these good things but that we can easily twist into self-righteous endeavors rather than God-honoring ones. Our hearts can easily fall into the same trap that the hypocritical Jews had fallen into, and so we must heed these words from our Lord. You must not pray like hypocrites. He also says not to pray like Gentiles. What Jesus means when he says Gentiles here is essentially pagans. So he's saying, don't pray like pagans. The use of the word Gentiles in this context does not simply mean anyone who's not an Israelite. It means those who are outside the community of faith or pagans, unbelievers. And how does Jesus describe how the the pagans pray, the Gentiles pray? The beginning of verse 7, he says that they heap up empty phrases The Greek words here in this verse actually could be translated babbling with many words. You could also translate it a noisy flow of sound with no meaning. Because that's what the pagans did. They piled on the words, they repeated themselves over and over again in ritual incantations, hoping, look at the second half of verse seven, that they would be heard for their many words. They hoped that their own false gods, their deities, would hear them because of the amount of their words, even though the content of their words was totally empty. Made me think of a a parody video someone sent me recently where a woman was humorously demonstrating how strange it would be if we talked to our friends and family members the way that we talk to God sometimes. was a demonstration that included the awkward repetition of her husband's name in a conversation with him, just as we often repeat Lord and Father and God and Jesus and whatever else. And, it, and we have to be honest, those repetitions of his name are rarely out of a conviction that we need to use his name that much, but rather often out of fear of silence with people in the room with us or just feeling the need to fill the time and heap up empty words. I was once part of a church where a man's repetition of the name Lord in his public prayers was so distracting and cringe-worthy that it became the subject of private joking very tragically. You know what I'm talking about, right? I don't want to demonstrate and risk being humorous or irreverent. Christians can often do this by piling on the synonyms too, trying to impress people, heap on more words. We ask that you would guide us and lead us and direct us. Well, those all mean the same thing. I could have just said one. We certainly don't do this always intentionally, but we must be cautious about this kind of thing, that we are not simply heaping up empty words. You might think when you first read this passage in the second half of verse 7 in particular that it is describing pagans that want to be heard by other people, but I don't think that's the case at all, which I've already indicated. I think what Jesus is talking about here is pagans praying to their false gods, hoping that their many words will make them more likely to receive the favor of their deity. Because the contrast that Jesus gives then in verse 8 is, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, you don't have to pile on the many words or babble incoherently to get God's attention like the false prophets of Baal did with Elijah on Mount Carmel. No, God is a father to his children and he already knows what you need. And he loves to listen and to answer. And so, just talk to him like he's your daddy. Like he's your father. No need for all the synonyms. No need to repeat his name over and over again. No need to be afraid afraid of a pause to think just like you might do in a conversation with someone else. No need to change your voice. No need to pretend or put on a show. He's your father. Please don't get sidetracked here by potential questions regarding Why we need to pray at all if God already knows what we're going to say. It's not the point Jesus is getting at here. He clearly knows all and knows what we need and what we're going to say before we talk to him about it and wants us to petition him and talk to him as our Father. The point Jesus is making here is he's a Father. He is not a false deity. He is not an angry troll or an ogre or a monster whom we have to convince to begrudgingly or reluctantly give in to our demands. He loves his children. He wants them to talk to him. And so it's from there then that Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And it is essentially the opposite of how not to pray. Instead of praying for your own glory, pray for God's glory. And then he says, and Matthew writes, what we often now since have called the Lord's Prayer. There are so many good books and sermons and articles and other resources out there that you could dig into in a pursuit of understanding this model prayer of Jesus deeply in your own life Today, I've just divided it simply into two calls. First of all, to pray with devotion, and second of all, to pray with dependence. Jesus is saying instead of praying like those who care more about being noticed by the people around them than they care about their relationship with their Father, pray with a heart that reflects a genuine and true desire to see God glorified, to see Him loved to see him obeyed. And instead of babbling on endlessly with vain repetitions, as one of your translations might say, and incoherent recitations and incantations that aren't grounded in any faith or realness of a relationship, speak to him like he's your father because he is and express to him your needs and ask him for help. You see, my friends, kingdom praying has its foundation in a real relationship with God brought about through faith in Jesus. And so Christians, kingdom people, do not have to appease a deity through the incantations of an empty, lifeless ritual. They don't have to try to impress people with fake piety. They're just all about their relationship with God through Jesus. And their prayers then reflect that reality, no matter how that sounds or how it looks. They're children of God because of the gospel work of the risen Christ. And so they're confident in their standing before him and they worship him in prayer, in love. They go to him in humility. So let's look at the first part of this model prayer from Jesus set in contrast to the hypocritical and pagan prayers of Jesus' time as well as in our own time. First of all, kingdom praying prays with devotion. Some basic elements here. Kingdom praying with devotion addresses the Father in heaven. It expresses a desire to see on earth as it is eternally in heaven His name regarded as holy, His rule exercised, and His will done. And so, first of all, we pray with devotion to our Father. With devotion to Him. That is at the heart of these opening words. He is our Father. He loves us as a Father. And so we love Him as our Father. And I know that maybe for some of you, the concept of a loving father is a hard one to grasp, even hard potentially to get fully on board with because your earthly father was not a very good father to you. Perhaps there was neglect or abuse or failure to provide or lead or protect, and so the concept of reciprocating love to a father in heaven because of his great love for you feels very abstract or maybe even painful to consider at all because it's a reminder of the sins of your earthly father. So first, I just want to say I'm so sorry that you have endured that, if that is you. May God bring healing to your life. May he richly bless you with a sense of his love for you, despite the lack of love that you experienced from your earthly father. But Secondly, I would invite you to consider the fact that your earthly father's failures do not represent the love of your heavenly Father. And by God's grace and with His help, you can begin to more clearly understand what a godly father looks like as you look to the Lord. And as you begin to see that all the things that you wish your earthly father was are fulfilled and exemplified perfectly in your heavenly Father, you will begin to see yourself grow in your love for your heavenly Father. So He's our Father. But also notice that Jesus says he's our Father. In other words, to pray to God is just as much a corporate matter as it is a private one. Now, To be sure, this model prayer is set in the context of Jesus' instruction to pray in private so that only your Father who sees in secret will see and hear and reward you. But it doesn't change the fact that we don't pray ultimately alone. We are a corporate body of believers. We are part of this local church and of the church universal. And so we pray together. As often, perhaps, not quite as often, as importantly as we do in private. And so we pray with devotion to our Father. We also pray with devotion to His glory. Kingdom praying flows from a desire for God to be viewed as being glorious and beautiful and holy and majestic and as delightful. As he already is. And that is why Jesus says to pray, first of all, that on earth as it is in heaven, his name would be hallowed. For God's name to be hallowed means for his name to be made holy, to be set apart. But Jesus is not saying that we need to pray for this as if God needs us to make his name holy. His name is already holy. His name is not just the combination of letters in our language that spell the word God, G-O-D. His name is the representation of who He is. And so, what Jesus is calling us to pray for is the recognition of who He is. A recognition of the holiness, of the set-apartness of God's name, of God's essence, of God's character. Because the problem isn't that God needs his name to be made holy by somebody else. The problem is that his name is not regarded as holy as often and as much as it should. Friends, do you know what happened to the people of God in Scripture when they were exposed to the presence and glory and holiness of God? there was terror, there was fear, there was panic, and yet in many so-called Christian churches there is an utter and total lack of reverence and awe and wonder at the glory of the holiness of God. There is instead a casual attitude, a flippant or lifeless singing and an unaffected heart on the part of God's people. But our God is a consuming fire, the book of Hebrews says. He is holy, 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 and he deserves to be regarded as such. And so kingdom praying prays that God would be viewed as holy on earth as in heaven. He also prays, secondly, that on, her, on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom would come. And I believe we pray this in two ways. First of all, we simply pray that Jesus would return soon. We want to see his kingdom rule exercised to its fullest with every injustice, every sorrow, every evil wiped out once and for all, never to return. We long for the day that Revelation tells us is coming when all things will be made totally new and Christ will reign on the earth forever. But secondly, I believe we pray that the rule and reign of Jesus would be recognized in ways that it is already realized. You see, the kingdom has come already. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God, even though not every aspect of his kingdom reign has been fully realized yet. Someday, the physical and visible reign of God will occupy the same time and space that we do. Oh, what a day that will be. But until then, we pray that the rule and reign of Jesus would be recognized, recognized in our homes, in our churches, in our cities, in our nation, and in the whole world, because Christ is already king, amen? Amen. But he has not yet eliminated every enemy's presence and power to its fullest. Christ has already conquered, amen? But he is not yet visibly reigning on the earth. And so kingdom praying prays that Christ would return soon and that God's reign would be recognized in ways that it is already realized. But finally, as it pertains to devotion, it also prays that on earth as it is in heaven, his will would be done. This phrase is so closely tied to the previous one that some scholars think it really belongs with with the one before it. I think it's worth considering on its own, though. Kingdom praying, Jesus is saying here, also wants to see life on earth look as much as possible like life in heaven. And no, I do not believe Jesus is talking about some sort of utopia here. But I think he's talking about God's righteous will. God's righteousness. And so I think this means we pray for God's will to be done in our culture, in our church, in the world, and so on. We don't want to see unjust, bloody wars. We don't want to see ethnic strife. We don't want to see murder or sexual immorality or deceit or any kind of evil. We pray for peace. We pray for love. We pray for joy because God's will is good. And it's better for everyone in the end if God's will is done. And so to the best of our ability and by his grace, we pray for the pursuit of God's will being done on earth in a reflection of what life is like in heaven. But I also think this means we pray for God's will to be done in our own individual lives. And I think in some ways this is the hardest part of Jesus' model prayer because it requires a reorientation of our minds, a reset of sorts. Because in our minds, we are all running our own little kingdoms. But reality is Jesus is king. And His rule is good. And His will is good. And it's our privilege and it's our joy to get with the program and be part of His plan. And so yes, we go to Him, as we'll see in just a minute, with our requests and our burdens, but all with a heart that desires His will be done, even when it means that ours isn't. And so... Then we pray, Lord, I think this situation should be resolved or handled this way, but you seem to be moving in a different direction, so I submit to your will. Even though it doesn't make sense to me, even though it's not how my brain works, even though it's not what seems to me what I would do. And Isn't this exactly what our Lord did when the brutality and agony of the cross was about to dawn? He said, if there's any possibility that we could do this a different way, that's what I want. But whatever you want is what I will do. That's what it looks like to pray your will be done. And so, first, we pray with devotion. And secondly, we pray with dependence. I think the basic elements of this section here is prayer that asks for the father to grant what is needed every day, prayer that asks for him to pardon sin, and prayer to keep his children safe from evil. And so first, it's dependence on his provision When Jesus instructs his disciples here to pray for their daily bread in verse 11, what he means is pretty literally what it sounds like, that God would provide what they need for every day. Now, sadly, this is such a foreign idea to many or maybe all of us. And I don't mean that it's sad because wealth, the wealth and luxury that so many of us live in is inherently bad, but that it's sad because the fact that we are so rich contributes to a lack of understanding how desperately we are in need of his daily provision. Some of you in this room might already have your retirement all figured out, an emergency fund ready in the event of a tragedy, investments made to help with your children's education, and the next vacation planned and paid for. But the people listening to Jesus say these words probably literally had to wake up every day and pursue that day's food and sustenance. And so for us, give us this day our daily bread is such a foreign thing. But for them, it was a very real thing. And maybe it is nearly as real for you as it was for them. Maybe your bills are really tight or your needs are feeling really acute at the moment. But either way, my friend, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, the only reason you have anything that you need is the gracious provision and hand of God. And kingdom people recognize this fact and they pray regularly that God would provide for their needs and so it's dependence on his provision secondly it's also dependence on his forgiveness I love that Jesus says in verse 12 forgive us our debts because that is truly the state that we are in as sinners we are debtors to God. We have sinned against him and we deserve to pay and a price must be paid. Sin cannot go unaddressed by a holy God. And so in our sin, we stand in need of forgiveness. Now, Jesus is speaking to those who have already trusted him and are following him. And so this prayer that he's modeling is particularly for those who already know him and need to daily ask for forgiveness for the sins that they commit still in the flesh. But I wonder if there's anyone here whose sins have never been forgiven. We've gathered today in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus... But maybe you're someone who's never actually embraced him in faith as your Savior and in repentance of sin so that you might be forgiven and restored to God. Part of what this model prayer tells us is that God loves to forgive sins. And Jesus is saying that his kingdom people pray for the forgiveness of their sins. And so I ask you this morning, no matter how many times you've been here, no matter if you're in a Christian family or not, Are you truly one of His kingdom people? Or are you just messing around with the cultural trimmings and trappings of Christianity because you like being part of a religious community and the morals of Christianity appeal to you? If you've never done so, I invite you to today. Trust in Christ and receive forgiveness of sin. But look at the end of verse 12 and then verses 14 and 15. I want to read them again. We also have forgiven our debtors. And then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus adds this note. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It is assumed that those who have been forgiven are those who forgive. The story is told of John Wesley, who was approached by a man, who said to him with the intention of boasting, I never forgive. To which Wesley replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sin." What Jesus means in verses 14 and 15 is that a person who never forgives can never be forgiven because they cannot see that the sins that have been committed against them pale in comparison to the sins that they have committed against God. Kingdom people, you see, extend forgiveness not in order to be justified by God, but because they have been justified by God. And so it prays... For provision, it prays for forgiveness, and it prays for his protection. This is the prayer in verse 13 of someone who knows that they're weak and that they need the strength of God. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, or as you may have in your version, the evil one. Temptation and the tempter does come to believers. And God does allow trials and temptations to come for the long-term good of believers. And so this isn't simply a prayer that temptation would never come. Rather, it is a prayer of dependence on God And a prayer for the fulfillment of what is promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says that God will, with the temptation, make a way to escape. The word here, deliver, in the phrase deliver us from evil, could actually be translated snatch, which I think is a beautiful image. It tells us that if we are children of God, his divine and powerful hand can snatch us up from evil and the evil one. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells the story of two men who were about to be burned at the stake under the reign of Bloody Mary. And as both of these men awaited their execution, one boasted to the other about how strong and defiant he would be in the the face of the flames, testified that His belief and faith was so strong that he would never recant. Whereas the other began to both tearfully and fearfully admit to the one that was boasting that he had actually always been terribly afraid of fire, had always feared that suffering like this would come to him and was actually terrified of what was about to happen to him. And he then asked the boasting man to pray with him that he would not recant, and then wept and cried out to God for strength to not succumb to the call to recant. The boasting man then rebuked the weak one for being such a coward. But when they came to the stake and the flames leapt up at them, the boasting man recanted, was released, and to our knowledge, never returned to Christ. But the weeping man, the weak man who had prayed, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, stayed strong as he was burned at the stake and died for Christ. That is the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about here. And so this is the model prayer of Jesus. But maybe you are wondering on this Resurrection Sunday, how a passage on the Lord's Prayer could be connected to Resurrection Sunday. And in response, I say to you that if Christ is not raised, none of us has access to God. None of us has access to a Father like this, the Heavenly Father like this. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, we are men most miserable, but because Christ has been raised, we are not miserable, and we have access to the Father to whom we pray. Oh, my friend, this is one of the very best things we could consider on Resurrection Sunday because it is one of the very best results of the resurrection. Because you see, my friend, if Jesus had stayed dead and his dusty remains still lay there in the tomb today, there would be no way to God but since he has been raised, we now know for sure that his once-for-all sacrifice has been accepted and the curtain torn in two from top to bottom means that we have access to God. And the Father is now our Father through faith in the finished work of the risen Christ on our behalf. Jesus submitted himself to the dominion of death when he rested in the tomb on the seventh day. But when he rose from the dead and exited that tomb, he was no longer subject to death. He was no longer the bearer of sin. He was forever alive, forever the risen king forever, the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Friends, there are many benefits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are many reasons to be excited about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I don't think any of them are better than the fact that because Christ is risen, sinful people like you and like me now get to pray to God as our father. You know, if you're a child of God, you don't have to pray to God. You get to pray to God. Your prayer time isn't something you've got to make sure you do. It's something you long to have. And when you pray, there's no need for the piling on of words. There's no need to pretend things are better than they are. There's no need to feel like you've got to twist God's arm into listening to you because He's your Father and because Jesus Christ is your Savior. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I call on you, I call on all of us to pray to God with this knowledge and in this way. Maybe you need to get right with God for the very first time, calling on him for salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. What better day to do that than a Resurrection Sunday? Or maybe you are a Christian and you need to repent of your hypocritical, pagan-like praying your empty words, your lifeless relationship with God, your empty view of God, or perhaps even a general prayerlessness. Whoever you are, I have good news for you. Jesus is a gracious Savior. God is a loving Father. Jesus is alive. And if you go to him in faith and repentance, he will joyfully receive you because of the finished work of our risen Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day and every day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Thank you for the great privilege of coming to you in prayer. Help us to pray in the way that our Savior has called us to pray. May our hearts be devoted to you in prayer. May they be dependent on you as we pray. And may we always be thankful for the great love extended to us in the risen Christ, so that we may pray to God as our Father. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for our doxology today.